you and Kathleen watched the final to all the boys movie, Always and Forever, Lara Jean. Um, yeah. By yourselves together. Uh, time. Yeah. Without me. Yeah. I was neither invited yeah. nor informed. We deliberately don't ask you. I, I'm, that's very <laughs> clear. No, I know that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Lainey. I am the founder of LaineyGossip.com and an entertainment reporter in Canada. And I have to say right now, I'm in love with Ted Lasso. I'm Duanna Taha. I am a TV writer and producer, uh, and I have trouble with things that are earnestly happy. That's also why I really enjoyed the SNL spoof Peloton last week. Uh, Tell me if you're on my side. On today's show, we try and extract some happy memories from Buffy. And we're going into some of the economic structures that may have made Britney Spears and her contemporaries find themselves in the position that they're in. Finally, to all the boys I've loved before, always and forever, Laura Jean, a deep dive on the series. And why? So much, Duanna. He loves her so much. (laughs) This is why we didn't watch it together. This and many more things coming up. This is show your work. You know, I think that within, I would say, 20 minutes of our first meeting, Buffy came up. Oh, I, it, undoubtedly. That makes perfect sense because, uh, yeah, I was a devotee of Buffy, although maybe in a different way than a lot of people who have formed, like, the Buffy fandom since. Um, and because at the time, certainly when you and I met in, like, 2006, Uh, Like being an evangelist for that show was almost a calling, right? Like I've never understood true evangelism as a concept more (laughs) than uh, where it uh, it pertained to, oh my God, so many people don't know about this show that is doing so many things with young women and all those characters. Um, So that makes, that tracks for me for sure. Obviously in the years since you've met other people who are as, uh, vocal about it having been formative, right? Well, yeah, but I also think it's, you know, it's one of the things you bond with Emily, our site manager over. Absolutely. Uh, right. Like right away when Emily started, like when Emily came on board, uh, Lane Gossip, and then, you know, when you guys first started talking, suddenly there was this new language and I had, listen, I am not a Buffy devotee as you, as you said just now. Um, and so I didn't know, I didn't fucking know that there were Buffy musicals, you know, the two of you squealing over Buffy musicals over the years has been amusing to me. But my point in bringing all this up is that, um, formative is the word that you used. Um, and so I, 
you know, that is also why, one of the many reasons why last week's development with Charisma Carpenter was such a huge deal. It was not just the Buffy fandom. It was when Buffy intersected with Time's Up, Me Too, workplace harassment, all of that. And it became like the one of the biggest stories of last week. If not for Britney, it would have been the biggest story. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would say the other reason I think is because you cannot talk about Buffy without talking about feminism. Um, the show overtly uh, said it was a feminist show. The creators said uh, that it was coming from a feminist viewpoint. And so I would argue, and you know, I hope I'm not going to upset people, but I think the comp- I think the comparison is apt. It was a betrayal of feminist ideals in the way that I think Bill Cosby uh, was a betrayal of respectability ideals. Um, and so, yeah, it was a lot for people to process, even though, and I'm not criticizing anybody for who would say this isn't true, even though I think over the years uh, with Whedon having gone on to uh, direct superhero movies and whatever else, it, it was more and more of an open secret. Uh, and there's a lot of reading between the lines that people could do. I like the comparison you just did there with Buffy, Joss Whedon, Cosby, the Cosby show. And, you know, if we're looking at more recent history, maybe Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling and the ideals of equality and standing up for people. Inclusivity. And- Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. This yeah. is why those uh, those betrayals hurt the most, right? Because mm-hmm. people choose a fandom, a community that they think stands for something um, yeah. and uh, and then are betrayed by it. But I wanted actually to tell a story because uh, it's not just we as fans who sort of ricochet when these things are exposed. I think that there are people inside these shows, as some of the cast members have pointed out, um, who also get duped by by um, what it looks like on the outside. Uh, and so I want to tell a story of a time when Buffy helped me uh, as a feminist and as a writer um, in a positive way, even though everything that we were hearing may have been going on in the background. And also, yes, Charisma Carpenter's allegations happened on the set of Angel. Uh, Joss Whedon was gone from Buffy by the time it would have happened. It was like season four of Angel, ergo season six or seven of Buffy. Like, don't at me. Anyway, (laughs) the reason the show was so important to me is because I was, uh, at that time, uh, when it came out, an aspiring TV writer, um, to the point where when I was in, I think, I think it was second year, we had our first deep media writing course. And there was this really arduous assignment. You had to do a deconstruction of a show. Um, How does it work? How are the mechanics? Now, this is no big deal. People do this on Twitter all the time. It was a big deal. And part of the assignment was you had to get a script from the show that you were uh, working on. And that was part of your grade. So if you were analyzing, like, what were the popular shows of the day? Maybe, like, uh, The West Wing or, mm-hmm. like... I was uh, just going to say that. Yeah, yeah, or Arrested Development, maybe, even. There were certain, like, used bookstores that would have these photocopied scripts they got from somewhere, and maybe you could find one. But if you were any 
less sort of mainstream than that. And this was the point of the assignment, I think, was to call a production company or otherwise find and source a script. Um, and this is in the early 2000s, like you have bare bones internet and like yeah. phone books. So like the stories of how people were going about this were legendary. And you talk to older people in older classes, like, how did you do it? Did you get your script? Did you not? Older people in I'm, older classes. I'm not lying. Okay. I remember that like, you know, somebody it's like wrote- like me saying grownups at your wedding. Yes. Like somebody who- wrote her her ballad of how she didn't get an Ally McBeal script uh, in her deconstruction project a few years back had become a, a like a, you know, a humorous biblical passage for us all. So anyway, I called and called around and like I really devoted myself to this and I probably took, um, it probably took a couple of months anyway. And one day, against all odds. I was a real good cold caller. Like I would just steal myself up. You are. One day against all odds, I targeted, got, and spoke to a writer named Jane Espenson on the phone. Jane Espenson is one of the the writers that people refer to Buffy uh, most often talk about Jane Espenson. She is incredibly popular and well-liked. Uh, she is, she was sort of the first person to publicly really, uh, espouse the whole, I'm a dork, uh, as a writer, I'm a little bit shy and that kind of thing. Uh, I don't exactly know why I targeted her as opposed to Marty Noxon or David Fury or the other writers that were on there at the time. Um, but I just knew, I was like, okay, this is where I'm going to start. And I got on the phone with her and she was amazing. She was lovely. She was like, that's a cool assignment. It's so cool that you want to be a TV writer, blah, blah, blah. We were under strict instructions not to, you know, you don't ask for a job. You don't ask anybody to read your stuff or whatever. And then at the end of sort of 10 minutes or so of conversation, she said, you know what? I'm not the person who needs to make these decisions. I'm going to pass you over to, in my memory, it was David, uh, who would be David Greenwald. He's another sort of uh, very formative writer on the show. And uh, she passed me over to him, like, phone transfer-wise, and I explained what I wanted. And he was like, oh, you know what, I really wish I could help, but, you know, we're not allowed to do that. Which, by the way, in retrospect, is absolutely true. Like, this was a bad assignment. And as a TV writer, like, handing over my script to uh, a student now would be, like, that's bad practices. You're not supposed to do that. Um, anyway, he was very nice. He's like, I'm sorry, I wish I could help, but you know, we appreciate it and that kind of thing. And then he was like, anyway, nice to, oh, you know what? Hang on. Jane wants to talk to you again. And so he transferred me back to Jane Espenson. Again, it's a miracle. Nobody hung up on me. Uh, and she's back down the phone and she went, I'll send you a script. What's your address? She's whispering (laughs) down the phone. Um, because, you know, if it's like many writer's offices, they were probably all in the same area. Uh, and she would have been a relatively new writer at the time. Um, and she sent me, I think, two or three. She was like, does it have to be one of mine? She sent me two or three of her original scripts. I now know because they have little stickers on them when they're distributed to say who yeah. they belong to. Um, and uh, I got an A on the assignment. But I wanted to talk about it because in the sp- face of all the like 
discomfort and feelings of betrayal and so forth, that to me is a really low-level analog way that Buffy and the writing of Buffy uh, encouraged feminism and encouraged one female writer to become a writer and like gave me what I needed in the moment um, without any, you know, without any, I couldn't do anything for her or pay her back in any way. Um, and hopefully now it's been, you know, some years, I'm not getting her in trouble by tattling. Uh, but I just wanted to say that that is a, that's a positive thing that we can take on. And those kinds of stories don't really hit the mainstream very much, nor do I think we are the mainstream. I'm not like revealing their, you know, secret joyful undertones. But I just wanted to point out that moment that even if you feel uh, a bit betrayed or a bit like, uh, you know, you were watching the show under false pretenses, that there were people there on a really small and analog and one-to-one level um, trying to to help uh, women and other people who are less visible and less seen. And I remember it to this day. What does Jane, where does Jane write on now? Is she? Yeah, Jane Espenson uh, wrote for years on Once Upon a Time uh, and all their derivatives, Once Upon a Time in Wonderland and whatever. Uh, She wrote on Jessica Jones for, uh, Mm. I think, at least the first season and is now the executive producer of The Nevers, uh, which uh, is, you know, whether she is, that's the one that he left uh, you know, at HBO, whether she remains there, I don't know. She remains very active on Twitter. Um, she does these things called writing sprints. She'll just say, okay. And many other people do this now to everybody in just say, yes, you are. And we're all going to work nonstop on something for an hour. Um, so just doing her part to open up and demystify the writing world, uh, to, to young people and people who don't know. And she had a great blog as well for many years about that, that we can also link to because I think it's still up. Did you comment? I mean, has she commented on last week or anything? Not as far as I have seen just yet. Marty Noxon, who is uh, arguably the other and arguably Uh more well-known female writer, um, has said, you know, I, I basically I support and believe uh, mm-hmm. these women. She didn't say like, I saw it and it happened. And instead she refers to her more public assertions that, uh, she was, had, you know, a difficult situation on Mad Men, she and Catter Gordon. Um, so she has basically said, I'm sure it's true without saying I saw it in so many words. So putting that, you know, the shittiness of Joss Whedon aside, now that you are like a contemporary of, of a mentor, a person who was a mentor, who obviously made space for you, and, like, have you, <laughs> have you gone on Twitter and been like, hey, I'm that person. No, not I, I remember me. I like, have so ne- What would you do if you encountered her? You're blushing now. I, <laughs> I am a bit. I mean, it was the word contemporary when you said that, that made me lose it. I mean, I guess this is me doing so a little bit. Um, Part of writers being so much more accessible on Twitter and other avenues is that the asks and even just the the needs for personal touches um, are exponentially larger than they were, um, you know, a, a decade or so ago. So 
I think that's maybe part of the reason why I haven't done so. Um, but, uh, but I mean, I would, I guess I will, I can, you know, <laughs> always link to this when we drop this pod. Um, but no, I suspect that it was unremarkable. I suspect that that was the kind of move, um, that happened all the time. And I should say, uh, I've since seen Marty Noxon, uh, speak at conferences and to other young writers and, uh, she has that same sort of spirit as do I'm sure other writers uh, who have worked with uh, in that arena, uh, there was a, a there's a very well-known uh, Firefly writer named Jose Molina who, with Javier Grillo Marxach, uh, please forgive the pronunciation, uh, have a lot of podcasts about uh, you know the world of being a TV writer and uh, Jose actively called out this was the culture on. Firefly, uh, Joss mm. particularly liked to make female writers cry. That's a mm. quote. Um, so people are in their own ways coming out and saying, this is what I went through. This is what I experienced. I just wanted to point out that uh, there was one writer who uh, who did that back then, um, years yeah. ago. And, that's, and that is what is complicated about all of this and what you wrote about last week when you wrote the Joss Whedon, Charisma Carpenter piece, which is that, you know, people are carrying with them memories, um, formative years. Um, and, and unfortunately when the big monster becomes and is confirmed as the big monster, I think that a lot of people assume that everyone was a monster. And when in fact, a lot of beautiful things can happen. Um, it's what, uh, Daniel Radcliffe said about Harry Potter and, you know, and, and, and came out and said, I find JK Rowling is disappointing. I do not support her views. Mm. But for those of you who love Harry Potter and what it gave to you and what it meant to you, you can still hang on to that. Absolutely. And I, I loved that he said it. And I do think it actually uh, created a pattern that Sarah Michelle Geller responded to these allegations in kind. Um, you know, her statement was not maybe super well phrased, but she basically said, I will forever be delighted to be linked to Buffy, but I don't want to be linked to Joss Whedon. Um, and I think too, without going totally into the whole thing, uh, that was another level of betrayal for people because, um, there was a narrative for years and years and years that Sarah Michelle Geller was difficult, uh, that she didn't want to keep doing the show, that she... Uh, you know, wasn't friends and and buddy-buddy uh, with the rest of the cast or crew or whatever. And I think a lot of people quite, um, quite aptly looked at those kind of accepted stories now with a different lens. Like who was mm -hmm. putting those stories out there and what was happening behind the scenes that made her want to like get in her car and roadrunner away the second things were wrapped. You know, it's, it's, it makes a lot more sense now. Um, so shout out to her for making that distinction as well. And shout out to the people like Jane, um, who take the time, who are in that position. And, um, and I think that, you know, our, our podcast is about work and we highlight the things that aren't always seen. Um, and this would be one of those examples. Absolutely. And, uh, just a reminder that, you know, you can't do all the things for all the 
the young people are all the people asking every time, but the one time that you do do something or that you have the time, uh, people will remember for uh, many, many years. So Joss Whedon and Charisma Carpenter, Ray Fisher were like, you know, I would say the second biggest story in entertainment over the last week. The biggest story continues to be Britney Spears. Um, and the fallout from framing Britney Spears, the New York Times documentary, um, the latest, of course, I think, is Justin Timberlake's apology. And there has been an ongoing conversation in the media, um, lots of think pieces written uh, by the media, interrogating the media and taking a closer look at themselves, um, us included, Laney mm-hmm. Gossip included, all of us included, the public, the audience, the viewers, the fans everyone who was part of the culture. Uh, For us on this podcast, on this show, um, in terms of, you know, things to really examine and deep dive where Framing Britney Spears is concerned is what we have touched on on our show, but I think it keeps coming up because this, it continues to be an industry thing. Um, Is child stardom in Britney's case, so young, um, all the details in the documentary, people talking about her dad, the things that he said about being wealthy, how wealthy his daughter was, is, um, and all of that. And I think given the space that you have worked in, both like on the media side, working on a teen-based content show Mm. initially, and then going on to write, you know, a variety of shows, but a lot of them involving young actors and just being a consumer, I think it's an interesting place for us to, to really delve into. Because as we speak, there are, I don't know, maybe listening to this, there is a parent driving their kid to an audition. Yeah, I think that anytime we're talking about Britney or Beyonce, which is not going to be the last time I'm going to compare those two, don't yell at me, uh, or any other, Justin Timberlake for that matter, any other people who have been in this business for a long, long time, um, we kind of neglect the economic model and the inherent sort of issues in that economic model. So yeah, I'm happy to dig into it. Uh, I guess my question is what made you, what made you think of that? Um, you know, when we talk about Brittany now, we talk about a, a superstar who is a mother of two and that kind of thing. But, um, do you feel like it was the framing of the doc that makes you want to go back to like the childhood and the initial stories? Yeah, and I think the the doc only had so much time to cover what the doc needed to cover, which is Britney's case and how the Free Britney movement came to be. But so, and that's why when a lot of people see that scene with with uh, that expert commentator um, who said, you know, I don't want to talk about Jamie except to say, I always remember him saying to me, "My daughter's going to be so rich, she's going to buy me a boat," Mm -hmm. and of course that fills out the character that Jamie Spears occupies now in the culture. But it really doesn't interrogate, um, it it interrogates a lot of things in the documentary. It doesn't really talk about um, how to set up 
success successfully for kids who come into the business so early. And the fact of the matter is, is that we're telling stories probably we're all going to need, like, you know, it's never going to be that they won't need to find young talent. No, absolutely. Um, There are a number of reasons why, uh, yeah, you need young talent, young performers. Uh, And my sort of loose marker for myself of when I think it is okay versus when it becomes uh, not okay and this Mm -hmm. is arbitrary and it moves around and whatnot is I think it is okay for a kid who really, really wants this to participate in a project, to be part of a filmed, um, you know, show, music video, whatever the hell. Uh, I struggle when that kid becomes the star of the same project uh, Mm -hmm. for years on end. Um, So let's say a few things about the profile of a showbiz family, if we will. Um, There are many, many stories, but you will see the same story over and over again. Child actors belong to single parent households. Um, And I mean that extremely literally, because even if you are a a child actor whose uh, parents are still together and married, the general model is that one parent has to stop working or working at another job uh, to make shepherding the kid around their full-time job. And the other person is uh, financing that. Um, So, you know, there are countless examples. Tell me anybody and I'll tell you the model of what it is, you know. I believe you. Um, In Brittany's case, that quote from that agent about, I don't want to talk, here's what Jamie said to me. Uh, met them in New York when Lynn Spears and Brittany and Jamie Lynn Spears, the baby, uh, were living in New York trying to struggle to get her. She was uh, doing, I think, uh, understudy work on Broadway at the time. Um, And Jamie and ostensibly their older son, Brian, uh, were at home, like in Louisiana. Uh, But the model holds true over and over and over again. Um, uh, it was best explained uh, on a, a podcast called Worst Ever, which I've talked about before. Um, and Christine Lakin, who was an actress on Step by Step, whose parents are together, explained what it took for she and her mother to move to L.A. and rent a shitty apartment and so forth, even after she had gotten uh, the yeah. pilot and then the series. Um, so that is there's an economic outlay right away. Mm-hmm. If you are uh, moving to Florida so your kid can be on the Mickey Mouse Club or you are uh, spending pilot season with them in L.A. or whatnot, a parent has to be with them all the time, not just for driving and auditions, which they try to schedule after school, but also once they're on set, they need a chaperone, a parent on set all the time. Um, Brittany's story is actually kind of novel in the sense that... um, Felicia Fee, who we all know and who was in the doc, uh, was hired to go with her because her mother couldn't. Right. No, I I really like that point. I don't think we talk about it enough, that it is a single parent situation. And we're not talking single parent as in, you know, 
the parents aren't together. One parent inevitably, yes, to your point, one parent inevitably assumes 99.9% of the responsibility of that kid's, the burgeoning star's career. There is an economic situation there, but then it becomes power dynamics and balance in the family itself. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess what I'm saying is this always happens that one parent, um, you know, puts, makes the child's career their primary focus. And that has to happen for years before that child makes it. Like that is a, an almost guaranteed financial and time outlay, right? Yeah. Then, and this is where Beyonce's parents are the exception, but stay with me. And then if and when that kid hits the big time, it's like, okay, amazing. This is happening. And partly as remuneration for all that struggle and all those times. And in a lot of cases for those parents who walked away from careers, mm-hmm. um, then those parents become managers or uh, agents who are dealing with their children's uh, financial and career choices, right? Which makes sense. I mean, you want somebody who is super close to your kid to be the person Mm -hmm. making those decisions. Um, But where we're going here, of course, is that once we've then gone, okay, I now as a manager get a stipend, once the money goes beyond that, then everything is gravy to the point where it starts to be a conflict of interest. Who wants this person, this child, but then later this person to keep doing this. Who wants them to keep working, right? Who's the boss? Well, when we're talking about personal and power dynamics within a family, yes, the money, all of that for sure. But then what's more complicated, I think, because the money complicates it, is in those situations, if the 16-year-old becomes the star, they become the essentially CEO. Well, you know what, Elaine? Um, You'd think, and I think you and I have talked about this uh, and said like, you know, that's terrible when they become the boss and the boss of their own parents and there are no limits. But in retrospect, the more I think about it, I don't know that that happens that often, which is to say there are absolutely situations um, where uh, because the kid has money and access they can go do whatever they want. Um, I'm not sure that those kids who are going and doing whatever they want are doing it over the objections of a conscientious parent who wants them to stay home and who's looking out for their best interests. Um, Without calling out too many people, let's talk about the Lohans, for example. Um, I would say that Lindsay Lohan, who definitely didn't have limits in place, definitely was going off the rails in a way that I think she would acknowledge, Uh, was being enabled by a parent who was also excited to go off the rails, right? You hear a lot of stories about uh, Mark Paul Gosseler talks about how his mother gave him, he was making whatever he was making, maybe a couple hundred grand a year, and his mother gave him a $10 a week allowance, even Mm -hmm. to the point where he was 16 and 17. Um, I bring this up to say, I think think your point is... uh, even though these people are making all this money, they sometimes remain infantilized, right? They don't actually learn to deal with making their own money. They don't actually learn to make all their own decisions. 
Yeah, well, however you shake it out, though, however it shakes out, in some cases, they become the boss. In some cases, they're infantilized. In other cases, the parents are infantilizing themselves to live a life that they always wanted. The fact of the matter is, is that it, it becomes a much more complicated family situation. Absolutely. Like, you know, if you ask any sort of career counselor, they'll be like, you know what's messy? Family businesses. So imagine how much messier when the family business is your actual child and their brand and what that means. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we were all squicked, I think. Lots of us were squicked with Gabby and Cheer. Remind me about Gabby and Cheer. Which one is Gabby? Gabby Cheer was like the almost pro one. She was doing photo shoots. They brought her in from other school and then they kept interviewing her mother and her dad and they were the ones running the Gabby show and like talking about merchandising. Remember that? Absolutely. And I think um, that that was one of the few shows where they actually allowed us to hear, um, you know, a character saying, I don't want to be doing this. I'm Gabby and I would rather not choose this, you know, music or like this video or this promo for these clothes or that kind of thing. Um, Something that is beaten into uh, you know, the word choice is semi-intended, uh, into all these children, uh, is you have to be grateful. You have to be excited. You have to be thrilled to show up on set because it could all go away tomorrow. So never express dissent, never express, uh, discomfort. So that show actually cheer was kind of rare in noting that Gabby said out loud, yeah, I don't want to be doing this. And that her parents were to your point five minutes later, It's, you know, be grateful. Someone else can take your place. And then five minutes later, you're the only one. You're the fucking best. You're the boss. Yeah. And I would say that uh, there's no end to the number of people who are damaged because somebody else wants the stardom for them more than they do for lots of reasons. Like money, yes, but also uh, fame or this or that or whatever. I would say it's really, it is almost impossible to create a child star out of a, out of a kid who doesn't want to be there at all. Um, you know, in some cases, maybe more in like physical, uh, athletic ability cases. Uh, but if you have a kid and you're pushing them and they show up uh, at an audition, it's too easy to blow an audition. It's too easy not to shine, uh, or whatnot that at least initially you have to believe that, uh, that, that, kid wants it of their own accord um, Mm -hmm. and that parents are just supporting, just, you know, facilitating, just coming behind them. Um, And so that's why the lines get blurred as well. I don't think it's about the kids who are crying at the end of every audition saying, I wish I was at soccer. By and large, they do not become the kids that we wind up talking about and the adults that we wind up talking about. The other thing about child stars who are stars when they're children is that they have a quality in common that doesn't have to do with how cute they are or how funny or whatnot. They're obedient and compliant. Like you said that you got the idea in Minari that they had to shoot because otherwise Alan was going to be out the door, like metaphorically or actually. I think there are a ton of kids in acting classes and later on uh, in, you know, as adults in improv or whatnot who just aren't obedient enough to make it work, who are funny, but not 
uh, docile, who are, you know, really charming, but don't have that sort of fear of God when somebody glares at them. Like I'm thinking about Seth Rogen at 18, joining the cast of Undeclared, and how I don't think he would have been a great, you know, 12 year old wisecrack kid. Yeah. Um, because a lot of those kids get passed over because they're just not that compliant, which is ultimately probably good. So where do we go then next with Brittany and once again, a story of the biggest superstar who started at an early age, who supported their parents, who had a complicated family situation because of it. And over and over again, we're reckoning with this. Yeah. Isn't there a way to do it? Well, I think the way to do it is, um, and I used to really, really uh, buck against this when I was a younger person, um, is for parents to set uh, a limit beyond which they will not go at this time. Um, you know, it's, it's to me, the real conundrum on this front uh, has always been the kind of inapt comparison is travel sports right? Mm-hmm. Um, when kids are really talented in a sport, then they get asked to try out for a travel team and they need to sign on or off. And that's a huge commitment from parents as well. And parents wind up pushing. But the the difference there being, uh, if your kid doesn't play whatever, travel hockey at 12, in theory, they cannot make it to the NHL by by 20, right? Like you have to go along those steps. Yeah. Um, the same is not true for mm-hmm. being a, a child performer. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be somebody who was on a show, who had a, you know, a supporting role, who recorded a song, something at 12 or 16 or whatever, and then come back to the industry a few years later. It will not penalize you in the same way. But of course, people always go, well, wouldn't it be great to get momentum? Wouldn't it be great to have enough success that by the time this kid is uh, independent, that they can do it on their own? And there are examples of that. um, And it usually relies on either a real judicious uh, taking time off or on the parents being fiercely, fiercely restrictive of what the kid can or can't do. The examples that are coming to mind are like uh, Mae Whitman. Uh, was, we forget now because she's just mm-hmm. the internet's darling, but yeah. she was uh, like the official, like adorable cherub of choice um, in, movie, in movies when she was young, right? Yeah. Um, and like uh, so cute. I mean, because one of my favorite movies is Independence Day. Sure. Mae Whitman was the president's daughter. She was. And she was, uh, she tells a great story about when they decided they were remaking it, uh, that they were having the entire uh, cast, original cast reassembled, except for her. Uh Um, But yeah, she was an adorable Moppet in One Fine Day or in Hope Floats. Oh, she was so cute in One Fine Day. That's right. Yeah. Right? Um, And then uh, did a series that most people I think have forgotten that even I am losing the name of. Uh, where she and Alia Shawkat played best friends when they were around 12. Um, and it was a really cute little series. Uh, and then she kind of moonlighted playing uh, maybe 
uh, on Arrested Development. She was always working, but she was never, as far as I can see, nobody was trying to create uh, the May Whitman enterprise. And that may be because both her parents were in the business and uh, sort of knew what that would entail. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed very much like it always belonged to her. Uh, Anna Kendrick tells very similar stories about uh, her parents always being the ones, uh, partly because they had a real insane commute from Maine to, to New York, going like, you can stop whenever, you can whatever, anytime. But the idea being she had some professional successes, but she was not a brand. She was not Anna Kendrick until yeah. she was an adult and dealing with it on her own metal. So I think parents having limits to what they will do, uh, whether that is, I will not relocate for mm-hmm. this gig, or I will not uh, allow you to sign on to something that, you know, makes you a brand or something. I'm very curious right now about Jojo Siwa. Do you know about mm-hmm. her? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like she is uh, a now 17 year old uh, who had this line of hair bows and a bunch of like songs and music videos and came from dance moms. And she has recently come out and I think is having a mostly positive response. And what as far as I can see, which is particularly notable because she was from dance moms, is I don't see a real parent personality becoming part of the brand. Um, and so maybe that's another thing. Uh, you know, we play these quizzes, you and I, every now and again. Um, obviously, we know the names of Britney's parents. We know the names of Beyonce's parents. Um, you know, do you know the names of, oh, say, uh, Justin Timberlake's mom? Lynn. Uh-huh. Harness. Good. How about... Um, <laughs> Are we playing this? <laughs> a, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't you know. know the name of Christina Aguilera's mother. No. Um, I think that's part of it is what I'm getting at is do not, if you are this parent, don't become part of the mm-hmm. brand. Um, yeah. You know, there's uh, Phil, Finn Wolfhard uh, of, uh, of Stranger Things and then recently he's done the It movies, uh, has a dad who is a, a writer, I think a featured TV writer. and there were a couple of references to him early on, and he was quick to kind of come out and say, I, I'm i not doing this. I'm not trying to piggyback on my son's success. I don't want this. Yeah. I don't want anybody to know me or ask for my scripts or anything of the kind. Like, don't be part of the brand. Don't be the mom who everybody knows your name. Miley Cyrus' yeah. dad, obviously, is well-known, but I think her mom is named Tish. Um, and so that part of things, like, don't become a, a, a unit with your child such that you can't be unpicked from it, you know? Oh, that's a good one. That's a really good one. You know, I had a really shitty thought, though. Hit me. And I'll, I'll, I'll run it by you. And this is like a shitty thing to say. It makes me really sad. But um, you haven't seen it yet, but when you do, Minari, mm-hmm. there is the – so Minari is about Steven Yun, um, and he and his wife moved to this plot of land in Arkansas with their two kids. The daughter is around-ish, 10, 11, 12. And then there's a little boy, seven. Mm-hmm. Really, like, I mean, this kid, his name is, his real name is Alan S. Kim. Uh-huh. 
And he is, I mean, I love this kid. His, the character, I love the character. I also love the real life kid. Like he shows up to his interviews in bow ties or in cowboy hats. Like it's either or. He's so fucking cute. Um, and he's amazing in the movie. As Sarah wrote in her, her review of the film, she's like, this is the most childlike a child actor has been in a movie that I've seen in a long time where you wow. can tell yeah. this kid is a kid still, mm-hmm. you know, that they could probably, like, they had to rush to shoot because otherwise, like, there would be no more focus. And so, I mean, I'm obsessed with this film. I'm obsessed with the casting. I'm obsessed with, like, and how they found Alan. This is his first film. He's never acted before, was never supposed to act before. The casting directors, of course, you know, the pool of Hollywood and, you know, what what Korean kid has experience, right? Right. Um, <laughs> the kind of experience that you would need from a different kind of pool. Anyway, so they ended up extending their search and they went into the Korean American communities. They went to churches. Mm-hmm. They reached out to community groups. They sent the emails out. They said, this is what we're looking for. And eventually they found Alan. So Alan is fresh. Sure. That is, yeah. And, um, Uh, Nobody knows if Alan's family is going to continue to keep him in film. It could just be Minari is one and done for Alan and he'll ride the press tour and then Alan will go back, hopefully, living the life of an eight-year-old. Awesome for Alan. But even if he doesn't, and this is my bad thought, even if he doesn't and he just decides, I love doing this, my parents, my guardians, um, put me in more of this, I'm not that worried about Alan because… There's a lack of stories being told where um, Alan's not going to be that in demand. I mean… And it's a shitty thing to say, but… And I wish, like, part of me is, like, inclusion, diversity, the kinds of storytelling. Yes, there is definitely more um, representative storytelling out there. People are trying to do more, but let's face it, we're not there yet. So there's not, like… For all the Allens of the world, they're not, if it was a white kid, same age, that white kid is getting a lot more prospects. Counterpoint, counterpoint, um, Mm -hmm. at the risk of, uh, you know, contradicting you. Here's where kids like Allen often wind up, and I see this as a net positive. Um, we're going to talk a little bit in, uh, in our next story. We're going to talk about, uh, to all the boys I loved before. Uh, and Anna Cathcart, who's uh, in those movies, and we'll talk about her, uh, was on Odd Squad for a number of years. Here's where kids named like Alan wind up. They wind up on all kid ensemble shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wind up on the Degrassi's, on the That's Odd Squads, too. on the, you know, kind of Sesame Street is an imperfect comparison, but you get the idea. On the Barneys yeah. and Friends. And I think that when you are... Uh, it depends on the situation, but I think that being in a situation where you essentially are with a class of uh, your contemporaries, that, you know, that can keep you from being the one, the special, uh, and you all kind of learn from each other. What's that, sorry? There's the Beyonce factor. Uh, Yeah, for sure. Um, And allowing yourself to kind of come up in that way um, allows kind of everybody to train each other. It's not foolproof by any stretch of the imagination, um, but it, I can see where there's an appetite for a kid like him who has some experience and if he does have it, 
uh, enthusiasm. And then I would say the other counterpoint is that even when it seems as though it can go, it, you know, even when it seems as though everything is stacked against things going well, um, there can be exceptions. Uh, and I would be so curious to know how this particular exception came to be. I am fascinated, like everybody else, by WandaVision, right? Mm -hmm. And especially watching WandaVision skewer uh, television tropes, I can't stop thinking about Elizabeth Olsen growing up with the fucking juggernaut that was Mary-Kate and Ashley. Yeah right? They could have done whatever they wanted. They could have made Elizabeth Olsen a thing at eight years old. Maybe she didn't want it. Maybe their parents didn't want it. Who knows? Um, and I would certainly say that uh, I think we we all would agree that Mary-Kate and Ashley were not driving that money bus. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, here is a woman in her 30s who is, um, you know, an actor in this in the most serious sense i.e not a you know a celebrity or a child star yeah Yeah. um who can hold her own with all her contemporaries so and and she came from uh not the exact same parental combination i don't think uh i believe that uh that she's i believe they don't have exactly the same parents but that's i'm splitting hairs for no reason um Either way, the point is it doesn't always have to go the same way, although Elizabeth Olsen is almost certainly the exception that proves the rule. Well, I should mention to your point about opportunities made available that will be available to Alan, uh, he has actually been signed to a new project. Mm -hmm. It's called Latchkey Kids, Joanna. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, it will star, um, it will also co-star uh, Elsie Fisher from Eighth Grade, one of our favorite movies from recent years. Okay. Um, it is about a nine-year-old boy who befriends an eccentric teenager looking to escape a dysfunctional life with her mother. The two find themselves confronting a considerable obstacle when local law enforcement comes to believe that the young boy might, that the young boy might be killing his babysitters. <laughs> Wow. I mean, that anyway. sounds super light. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, I'm telling you, this kid, I'm, I love this guy. He is, there is, anyway, when you see this film, look out for Alan as Kim. Who plays if David. you, yeah, and if you have examples of um, child stardom gone good or uh, things that you want us to see and to look at, we're, uh, we're happy to hear it and to talk about it. I misspoke earlier, and uh, Elizabeth Olsen and Mary-Kate Nashley share all the same parents. Um, so I think that more proves the rule, for whatever that's worth. And we don't know the parents' names. Do you? Uh, only Without because looking? I'm on Wikipedia, but uh, no, they're not a brand and never were. So points for the Olsen parents on that front. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, you know, I accept that you have other friends and other, we all have things that we do with other people. Um, but in particular, you and Kathleen watched the final To All the Boys movie, Always and Forever, Lara Jean, um, yeah. by yourselves together. Uh, this time? Yeah. Without me. Yeah. I was neither invited yeah. nor informed. Here, here's where I introduce a little what's your drama Sasha dynamic into yeah. our podcast. We deliberately don't ask you. I, I'm, that's very <laughs> clear. No, I know that. Um, but I want to talk about the okay. reason. Yeah, go on. Yes, let's talk about the reason. Um, the reason, and I think we all know this, <laughs> is that you guys want to enjoy that movie uncritically and just squee about it, right? There's a lot of squealing, giggling. There is a lot of crying. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, crying while laughing. Yep. And a lot of saying to each other, oh my God, he loves her so much. Right. And Which is a special place. It's sacred. Yeah, uh, I get vibe. that. And, and that you, is not you. No, you think, <laughs> and I would agree that um, that's not a place where I shine. <laughs> Right. But yes, to your point, you are not part of those viewings. Which is fine. Screening parties. But here you are playing both sides of it um, because we're going to be here talking about the other side of that movie, which I also devoured. um, But talking about, you know, the fact that that movie was made. It's the end of a trilogy on Netflix, arguably. Uh, the first to all the boys was the linchpin of a whole bunch of like YA squee worthy content um, for Netflix, like Netflix originals. Um, and so I think you're the one who has to answer for your crimes because you're here about to be on the other side. <laughs> I am. And I think that I think that first viewings are super important and also setting when and how you view something. Um, to me, maybe it doesn't affect you, but that 100% colors the way I feel about a film. Yeah, I buy it, but I also have to be the person who says, well, if it's amazing, it would be amazing no matter what. Uh, if you have to engineer the situation, maybe it's because you are worried that it's not going to deliver what you want. I disagree. I think that that is, I think that, you know, movies are designed to, and that's why, I mean, I don't want to get, listen, I don't want to be um, um, Christopher Nolan, uh, pro Christopher Nolan here anyway, but I do like a certain vibe that you get from a theatrical experience or a home viewing experience where the conditions are set up for you to be able to openly enjoy something in a certain spirit. You know, I I saw Hustlers, for example, at 10 a.m. So 
too fucking early sometimes to see a movie. I saw yeah, Hustlers at 10 a.m., but I saw it with, like, Kathleen and Danielle. And at 10 a.m., and norm- Hustlers is typically a movie I would want to watch at 9 o'clock. Oh, my God. At my beloved VIP theater with my burger and my cocktail and, like, hooting and hollering. That but is literally o- how I saw Hustlers. And, yes. it, like, it was great. It was worth it. Exactly. And the thing is, at 10 o'clock, with two of my, like, great girlfriends and then a bunch of other journalists that don't hoot and holler, it was still a great time, right? The condition was there. Had I been alone and, like, with these very, very serious journalists, capital, 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 who maybe wouldn't have the same vibe, I worry. I I would have worried about, like, how I would have been able to process it. But I will always love my first viewing of Hustlers. For that reason. Um, Well, I guess I'm here to say I think it can be both. uh, Because I felt both ways about uh, To All The Boys. Um, But some of the both, some of the ways, are things where I was like, I don't know. I don't know about this. Oh, I I did have some. We had some I don't know moments. Right. I think the difference, the reason why you're not invited is because you would take the I don't know moments and extend them, whereas like we blipped over them and we were like, okay, but let's focus on how much he loves her. He loves her so much. Right. Um, well, listen, <laughs> right now I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to actually uh, give people a real-time view of what it's like to watch something with you, uh, Squeeze and All, which is to say, I got to run to the bathroom. Um, so just as we're about to start and get into it. I have to pee, so let's pause and we'll pick up in a second. Oh, shit. You did pull a me. So we're back. To All the Boys is, of course, a series of three movies that is largely faithful to a series of three novels. Um, which, you know, obviously by virtue of being novels, they give more to the story and nuance and so forth. There was one change that I wanted to talk to you about first and foremost. Uh, in of course, To All the Boys or in Always and Forever? In Always and Forever. There, yeah. There's uh, To All the Boys is the original. P.S. I Still Love You is the second. And Always and Forever is the third. Uh, in Always and Forever, uh, there is a key change uh, to the books that I understand, but I also, you know, I, I am sad about, and that is, uh, you know where I'm going, I suspect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that is the change in the universities that the characters are going to attend and are hoping to attend or not. Yes. And the decision-making that was, you know, the, the stress and the decision-making and the back and forth between Peter and Lara Jean about where they would go and and all of that. Yeah, in the book, uh, he is slated to attend uh, UVA, the University of Virginia, on a lacrosse scholarship. Uh, Her stopgap is William and Mary, and then she's going to transfer a year later. And then the surprise school that wins her heart is uh, UNC Chapel Hill, the University Mm -hmm. of North Carolina. Right. And then in the book... Peter considers not going to UVA, right? Yeah, I think and, he flirts with the idea of joining yeah. her at uh, Chapel Hill. And um, then there's like an issue with her. Then when his mom finds out, I think I remember that. 
correctly, that's, right? That's that's yeah. correct. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. uh it's pretty last minute and you know, it it's presented as being a moment of desperation on his part, but yes, you're right. And yeah. what I loved about that is and you can't put all of this in a movie, but uh UVA and William and Mary are both in state schools for Peter Kavinsky and Lara Jean. Um, and, uh, UNC is the far away one because it's out of state and that means different things. And, you know, we are Canadians and our, our understanding of their university system is less sophisticated, but it is meant to be that, you know, it's a really logical plan that they both made to go to UVA, which happens to be 15 minutes down the road. Um, it's like a Toronto couple deciding they're both going to go to U of T, for example. Yeah. In the movie, uh, they are both aiming at Stanford, which is already out of state. Uh, The movie's Mm -hmm. set in Oregon, and uh, they would be going to California. Then she wants to go to Berkeley, which I don't think anybody would say Berkeley is an analog for the College of William and Mary. William and Mary is a great institution, no shade whatsoever. But Berkeley is like one of the top 10 schools that people want to get into uh, outside of the Ivy League or maybe even inside of it. It's huge, as is Stanford. Yeah. Uh, And then... UNC Chapel Hill becomes... (laughs) Right. And UNC Chapel Hill, which from what I understand is a very hard school to get into, particularly as they point out in the book, out of state, um, becomes NYU. Now, this is where I, I, I texted you guys, uh, I'm having a midlife crisis, uh, because I wanted to go to NYU. Uh, I even went through the initial like motions of applying to NYU. And then they sent the form for what the financial affidavit, meaning you have to prove you have this much money for an international student, which is what I would have been. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you have to prove you have this much, basically, uh, $80,000 per calendar year. Mm-hmm. And my father laughed in my face <laughs> quite rightly. <laughs> right. Uh, and that was the end of that story. Um, but I guess my question to you is, would, do you feel that you needed that sort of I don't know, let's say, uh, you know, mainstreaming of the schools in order to understand and enjoy the choices. It's interesting that you said that because um, I read a piece, I can't remember and I'll have to find it. I read a piece last week, uh, uh, like a review of the film, which is mostly positive. But what the writer objected to was the um, romanticization of NYU the romanticization of schools in general. Mm, um, interesting. And that was her, um, that was her big problem with, with, with the story. Um, and, 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 and this is a bigger thing, uh, especially the writing, the writer's American and already, as we've seen from the college admission scandal, there is a romanticization that helps these schools continue to charge that much money and make education what has become a luxury. So I think that's what she was hitting at Mm -hmm. for that point. And a movie like this only exacerbates what is becoming a more and more obvious issue, problem, right? Um, And so 
but did it bother me from my enjoyment of the story that needed to be told, which is this young woman making a decision? Um, I will say it bugged me that she didn't go at least visit Berkeley. Fair. Yeah, that's fair. Which is what this writer that I'm talking about also pointed out. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, great. You fell in love with NYU. But I just, it, it, it really, to me, it would be like, well, but I want, like, did you go see Berkeley too? But did you feel the choice was necessary to begin with? Had they kept it to, you know, I'd have to do research to figure out what would be the comparable schools in Oregon, which is where they set the movies because they were shooting in Vancouver. So, uh, you know, the, the geography had to be addressed. Um, you know, this or that school in Seattle or surrounding area, like, yeah, you know, or had she chosen Berkeley over Oregon State or whatever? Did you need that change to those brand name schools in order to enjoy this? I I will say I liked that change for what it forced Largine to do. Here's a character who's comfy and cozy. Mm-hmm. She's got her cookie. She's got her block. She's got her school. She's got everything. Everything, And that's who we meet at the beginning in the very first movie, right? She, the whole issue with Lara Jean is that she needs to be pushed out, or not pushed, but she, she, she needs to expand her world. For sure. For sure. And, and she expanded it. And then, you know, in the second movie, which I really don't, like, I mean, I don't think we need to talk about the second movie. <laughs> um, but so in this way, it was the the manifestation, like the biggest manifestation possible of what Lara Jean, how her story needed to get bigger, her boundaries needed to get bigger. So I bought it. I liked it for that. It's not that I don't buy that that character would or could enjoy NYU. I enjoyed the specificity of the originals uh, where UNC Chapel Hill, which again is a great, great school, uh, is stands in for being different, being away, being elsewhere, making that choice, even though for us, it seems like eh, it's a state next to another state. Um, ironically, when I was looking for reactions last night, I found them initially on uh, a subreddit called Applying to College, where people were like, this is the movie that gets it, the angst and the you know issues and the whatnot. Uh, but I know somewhere there are guidance counselors being like, these aren't the only 10 schools. Uh, so fine and fair enough. The trope about falling in love with New York uh, is one, again, I applied to NYU, I'm susceptible to, but I still found it well done, um, even though it is uh, a trope. How did you feel about it? So I don't feel about New York the way you feel about New York. We've talked about this lots of times, right? Like New York is your thing and London, England is my thing. Mm -hmm, I think, mm -hmm. you know. So. so what I what I liked more about the trope of New York is that LJ had a great day with friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked, you know, and, and, and particularly what I liked is the way she was at that party. In the first movie, she was not comfortable going to a house party that was probably like three blocks away from her place, right? Right. And now here, she's in New York City, like a city she's well, whatever, New York City, she's never been there. And she somehow ends up at a college party and she's not afraid. She's more odd. Um, Part of it is because she's surrounded by people she feels safe with. And she's been able to find, like she's she's been able to give herself over to that sense of safety. 
that's what I liked. I liked the fact that she was experiencing New York in a safe way um, and that there was like, even though she and Peter had initially wanted to go spend the day together and they weren't able to, to me, that's always been Lara Jean is like, nothing about her life is less than when another person isn't around. Yeah, I I like that for sure. And I also liked that uh, what sold her on New York ultimately wasn't all these iconic famous bakeries Mm -hmm. or even, uh, you know, famous spots to eat or whatever. Um, I mean, I think the characters encountered a much, much more sanitized version of the New York subway than has ever existed. Um, But... I liked that what sold her was a random night with random people mm-hmm. and the sort of, you know, the bits of life that were happening and not the the glamour and glitter of New York, which I think has entranced many a young person, many of whom 10 years later will say this city spits you up like, you know, yeah. it will abuse the hell out of you. Um, so there's that. Now, you said, uh, I don't think we need to talk about the second movie, but I think we do a little bit in that the first movie really got a ton of people on board for this relationship, people who had never read the books or movies. And the second and the third movies had both a different director and a different writer, Mm -hmm. ostensibly because of scheduling issues, but here we are. And also, uh, I have unconfirmed reports that they were shot back-to-back, that uh, the second movie and the third were, loosely speaking, one continuous production. I heard that, too. I didn't like it. I found a real change in, um, obviously, there was a real aesthetic uh, attention paid. And, you know, shout-outs on some levels. I love that after Lara Jean comes home from New York, she immediately starts uh, gently modifying her wardrobe and makeup to be a little more her version of City Girl, which I thought was yeah. accurate. Um, but the way the movie was cut, even, there's a lot of space between each line. Uh, the lines are written in a way that is a lot more basic and less bantery than before. And the Peter character, uh, who... Let us be fair, and I'm sure that author Jenny Han would agree, who is a fantasy of a good boyfriend to begin with, especially mm-hmm. a high school boyfriend. Yes. Um, becomes basically a like a moppity teddy bear. Uh, and to the point where I thought they were going to wander into the region of Lara Jean feeling like she was growing past him, like he was too much of a sad sack. Uh, this is a place that Judy Bloom likes to play in a lot, where the former love of your life now uh, seems more like a pitiable character. They didn't do that. Um, and, you know, there have been many comments made about like, oh, the chemistry that was there between the two leads in uh, the first movie just didn't come back in either of these two. So uh, how does that fit into your enjoyment of the movie or your processing it? Well, I agree with you in terms of the consistency of the aesthetic. Like, all three movies have a completely different, like, color tone. The second movie in particular was, I mean, maybe by design, but, like, seemed to be lit 
like not lit. When you like close your eyes and think back on any scene in the second movie, it, it's dark, right? Uh, yeah, and or it's gray flat. and yeah. I would say um, that, and this is going to sound like a critique, and it sort of is, but maybe it was intentional. I found the aesthetic of the second two movies to feel, to me, incredibly suburban. And uh, I don't actually mean that in a derisive way in terms of, oh, the suburbs, because the characters are overtly from the suburbs, but almost in terms of the, the decor and the amount of space in the house and the lighting that actually happens in suburban um, kind of formula houses, that there's less warmth and you have to go out of your way to create that uh, color tone. So yes, I agree with you. Yeah, so the I, I think that that's one of the things that like drew you in without smacking you in the face with obviousness and, and showing the work, so to speak, in the first one is that it felt like you were literally stepping into these people's homes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the fact that the characters have a real vested interest in how things look and decor, and it's not just yes. that they happen to live in these gorgeous places, That's right. right? It was intentional. The second and third movies, for sure, all of that for, all of that felt staged, and it contributed to, I, said, I guess, a sense of detachment where you, you don't feel like you're really in the bedroom with them. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, I found the family to be the most natural uh, set and the most natural set of characters. I was, I felt more of what you're feeling every time we went to school or to, you know, restaurants with other characters. That's when to me it felt the most wooden. Um, and uh, maybe that's why I like the New York sequences so much because it seemed to loosen up the characters and the Lana Condor performance more than in those uh, high school hallway scenes that we've seen a lot of times before and that weren't doing anything new. What I will say about Peter, I, I don't buy, like, I, I'm, I'm not one of the people who, like, I disagree with the chemistry. I think in the third movie, the chemistry between Noah Centineo and Lana Condor was right there. I was all over it. I was feeling it again. Um, what I think was a disservice though to Peter's character is I don't think that his father was well cast. I didn't buy, um, I didn't buy the actor from E.T. <laughs> That's how yeah, I yeah. always will see him. I didn't buy him as, uh, Peter Kavinsky's father. And I also, I like, the scene in the cafe was supposed to be a real moment for him. Yeah. It fell flat for me because I think Noah did a great job in that scene. I don't think the dad actor brought it. I think he did an okay job in that scene, but I would argue maybe because of that actor. I suspect that was because, uh, do you remember there were like rumors flying around of, oh, uh, Centineo wants Mark Ruffalo to play his dad? Uh, because they do have more than a passing resemblance, right? Yes. So yes. I'm going to guarantee you somebody puts the offer out to Ruffalo. He's like, whatever, I'm busy or trapped in Atlanta or whatnot. And right. then they decide, well, we can't just cast a nobody then. We have to go with a name. And so then they start trying to figure out who's a name that they can put in as a little bit of bait. Similarly to uh, John Corbett 
playing mm-hmm. Dr. Covey. Uh, and that's where they landed with, uh, with Henry, Henry Thomas. Thomas. But I also think it, I also blame the writing. I also blame the lighting. Like it was the, everything about that scene felt antiseptic. And I saw Noah Centineo do a lot better with, um, with stories of that type on the Fosters, which mm-hmm. is a, uh, a show with a fraction of the budget and the audiences, but which, uh, dealt with sort of intimacy and familial kind of complicatedness and, uh, natural verisimilitude in terms of the way people speak, uh, in a much, much better and more tangible way. I think everybody here was set up to fail, I guess is your point for that scene and arguably for, uh, a lot of, of these scenes. Yeah. I don't dispute that if we're going to take that kind of analysis to the film and it deserves it. I mean, we always talk about how rom-coms deserve you know, this kind of film criticism. I love it. I think, though, that all of it falls apart if the character isn't there. And one of the things I will defend up and down and all around is that this is a recognizable character who is real. This is Larjean Covey, Larjean Song Covey, is, um, is so tangible to me that in spite of whatever deficiencies in writing and lighting, Lana Condor's performance of a character that was already so well-built, so well-rounded, is so good that it and she, and she lifts everything else up with her. Right. Um, You know, you reminded me of arguably the the most overarching critique of the third film is that uh, the characters go to Korea. The, uh, the characters are half Korean um, and they go there and they experience it. And there's a point where she says, you know, even though I, I look Korean, I don't know the language and I'm kind of an outsider in other place uh, in either place. And it's kind of dropped. Uh, and there are a lot of conversations about uh, that go back to the writing of the book. Why are Lara Jean and her sisters half Asian, not full Asian? Or why is, you know, her identity not more of a factor in where she lives? And those are also things that are also, uh, those are also questions that are affected by the move from setting the the movie in Virginia, uh, Mm -hmm. which has a, a Southern culture and adheres to those trends and moving it to Oregon, which doesn't, and uh, immigration therein, and whether or not she does or doesn't feel other at times uh, in an all-white environment. Uh, the the Lara Jean of the movies isn't necessarily in an all-white environment, you know? So those are questions about adaptation and and that kind of thing. But that's, that's where I go back and I borrow a phrase from you. A one movie and one story don't have to do all the things. No, absolutely. And they don't, especially, you know, and I appreciate that they don't, uh, when a lot of that stuff is internal, right? It's the internal monologue in a book that doesn't translate to a movie. Yeah. But then I guess the question is then why include the, the South Korea sequence if it's not taking us anywhere? Like you could make the argument that it's opening her up to other places and other stuff, but we knew that we never thought that she was afraid to get on a plane and then 
South Korea or New York change her. You know, it's not, it was, it was kind of a leftover concept from the books that, uh, for the case of the adaptation arguably didn't need to be there. I, I disagree. Um, going to Korea meant that the film itself opened on a soundtrack that was K-pop. That on its own, without having a reason to justify and writing 1,000 words and an essay why she went to Korea, that to me is enough. The sound that the audience is introduced to, so many of whom do not speak Korean, that song, the first ever song, and then the song that is played when they leave Korea is also K-pop. That is, to me, that's number one. Number two, it's enough that these three girls who are half Korean got to experience Korea together for the first time. That to me is like, you know, I don't know that we need to spend five more minutes in the film or 15 more minutes elucidating that. Um, for a lot of people who are going to be watching, that in and of itself is, is good. Look, I love that as, a, as you're pointing out what the viewers get from it. I agree with the critiques of don't use that trip, which is beautiful and visually stimulating, gives us those musical interludes, uh, as a hand-waving towards she has complicated ideas about her racial identity and then never touch them again. That's my feeling, right? You can't use that trip as a as a shorthand for it's complicated to be uh, an Asian girl with a white dad and then truly never address it after that 10-minute opening sequence. Do they not address it, though? Because Lara Jean's, Lara Jean's whole central conflict is, who am I? Like, in many cases, this whole journey is about identity. She is the girl who saves things. She holds on forever. She's also the girl who needs to discover, who needs to open up her boundaries. All of that is part of it. Um, you're being kind. That- I'm being, I'm going to say you're being kind. I love that. I love everything you're saying as having been derived from uh, her identity and her trying to find a place in the world. And I lost yeah. my mom and she was Korean and therefore I will hang on to things. Um, and I differ from my sister who is also Korean and lost her mom in these ways, but they didn't, they, they didn't play those things out on screen. I don't know that they had to. Like, I, I guess, I guess I just argue that people who have not had that experience of being in one culture, but of another, um, are not going to make that leap that you just made. That's, that's my thing is if you're going to do it. But that also goes back to my point of it doesn't have to be all the things. It can nod to it as a part of who she is, but it doesn't have to like, it, we don't have to have it become the B plot or the, the A minus plot. And take out there. the line about, I have, I just thought that that line was trying to nod to uh, a culture of having been made in 2019 or 20 when our racial attitudes have demanded more nuance than maybe hmm. when the book was written or, and I thought it was inadequate on that front. Yes. If it's like, uh, we're not, you know, we don't need to go into that. Great. If it's, we're going to go all the way into it. Great. But don't, it felt like, uh, it felt like a bit of dressing to tell me that we were addressing her racial identity and then not actually doing it. 
See, that was, I, I like that conversation as like a bedtime or whatever um, line that you say to your boyfriend. Here's like, this is just something I'm working out in my mind. And she's still going to keep working it out. But you say it to the person you're closest to. And it's a shorthand. And like, that was what was real for me. Well, that's a whole other can of worms because I'm not sure that the movie showed us elsewhere that Lara Jean and Peter are those people for one another, or there's a real like thing to open up where she says, I have this complicated feeling about my identity and he shuts it down or doesn't understand. And we see that they're growing past each other. It just didn't work for me. Ultimately, that's what, that's what that sort of comes down to. Yeah. I don't see it that way at all. I think that there are lots of valid criticisms. That one, in terms of, you know, not taking the opportunity to expand upon biracial identity is not what I needed that film to do, nor is, is nor do I think they dropped the ball on it by dropping something in. I just think it was, it seemed to me that they were trying to have it stand in for something and I would either ask that they do it or not. So do you think that this is Netflix's best book to movie series adaptation? I mean, uh, sure. Unquestionably, I would say in terms of like uh, faithfulness and also in terms of like permeating the like the general pop culture conversation. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There probably should be like, I, I wish there was like a chart or a TikTok charting like the relative popularity of the books before uh, comparing, say, the To All the Boys books with the Bridgerton books, which I think fewer people had read, right, before the series um, and that kind of thing. But yeah, I think unquestionably, and the others that play in this sandbox are um, Dash and Lily, which you introduced me to, right? Or uh, was the... Yeah, you... you told me to... Okay. No, uh, Nick and Nora and uh, and Dash and Lily and all yes. those. You Nick and Nora, me I for sure introduced you. I don't remember Dash and Lily. Um, I- but anyway, um, and Eli and somebody else. There was also another one. Uh, but you know, yeah, I think it it has to do with how how well known were the books beforehand. Certainly, that's the way I approach them, and I definitely felt different about to all the boys because I had read all three books before the movie came out. Right. I don't think I, did I? Or did I read them concurrently? I can't remember anymore. Um, I, I, man, I don't know if this is going to be another half hour conversation, but like, I'm trying to think about now that you brought up Dash and Lily and that's specifically Netflix and it's specifically like a lot of people enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it. I I binged it, I think, just before the holidays. Yeah. My issue with Dash and Lily, I think, is that it didn't stay with me. Uh-huh. Did you watch it? I didn't watch it. Uh, and um, I feel like it, it's a casual thing on my to-do list to get to Dash and Lily. Yeah. Uh, it's, not as, it's not as hardcore as some of the others, for sure. And it's good. It is good. It's well acted. I love, I, I love the, the act, like I love the chemistry. It's all there. For some reason, it just, I don't know, it just didn't grab a hold of me. Um, 
and so yeah, I I would consider I would consider to all the boys an achievement for Netflix. I am like so interested in where they go from here now that they've opened up a market, as you said earlier, for this kind of content where we're we're going for that hit, that that sweetness, that earnestness, that adolescent angst, um, all of that. I I do think it's a good, you know, I think that despite whatever criticism that, you know, despite whatever criticisms people may have, I do think and I hope that it will be a legacy, that it leaves something. You know what I mean? I think absolutely. I think it has uh, premiered a different kind of heroine in terms of somebody who, to your point, was already content with her life before Mm -hmm. a boy um, and a different kind of of family dynamic actually being the thing that drives the the movie and the characters. Uh, I do think it was quite revolutionary in that way. Uh, both as a book and on screen. Um, in terms of, you know, what that does, uh, the one that is that has my heart in my mouth, which is not uh, Netflix, uh, is, of course, the long-ass-awaited adaptation of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, is finally mm-hmm. being made. Um, you know, uh, Kelly Fremont Craig is writing and directing uh, she's from the edge of 17 among others. Uh, and I, that's kind of what I'm waiting for is there are lesser known and to my mind, juicier Judy Bloom, uh, products that would make amazing Netflix products. Yeah. So that's really what I'm hoping opens certain floodgates. Uh, and, uh, you know, and God, Netflix, actually, you know, when we say, Like, if we talk about movies to TV, that's not a one-to-one comparison. But the other big, big, big success in this arena uh, this year was The Babysitter's Club, which did the almost unthinkable task of totally and completely updating the books, both Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of temporal things about, you know, uh, texting and this and that, but also in terms of the ways that we see and talk to 12 and 13 year old girls as opposed to when they were written 20 odd years ago and did it really seamlessly and almost enviably. So I I would argue maybe that that is the bar to clear in terms of adaptations, but for sure there is a, there's a big market here. I listen, I was too old for babysitters club in terms of reading. So I have no attachment to that series, that franchise. Um, so I will have to take your word for it because I don't know if I can actually go back and read all those books and then start on the series. We do have something more immediate coming though. And what a lot of people are looking to, this is in the fantasy genre, but Shadow and Bone based on the series by Lee Bardugo is coming Mm -hmm, on Netflix mm -hmm. very soon. And so like heads up for that. Absolutely. And like in uh, the algorithm, all of these will appear together. Yes, for sure. And I guess the question is, obviously, you know, if you are uh, a fan of something, like what's the thing that you think is on the precipice of being adapted or whatnot? But uh, moreover, like if you, it's kind of seems like a leftover old fanboy thing of like, no, don't adapt that thing that I love because you're going to wreck it. And uh, I think that now the fans are making the things, largely speaking, so it's less about getting wrecked. 
Um, but uh, what's what's the thing that you wish people would consider that hasn't quite hit uh, quite hit Hello. hard enough for there to be an adaptation? I'm thinking too about the announcement last week that uh, Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller Bridge were going to uh, remake yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which I enjoyed quite a bit for what it was at the time, but I'm more excited for this team up, I think. Uh, I enjoy so, that movie too so much. Um, yeah. But I, I I think this is exactly the right direction to go in. Exactly. Um, if you're going to, yeah, if you're going to uh, like reboot it or reimagine it, this is exactly what you want to do. Um, but I guess the one that we've been waiting on and we've talked about for years and years now is Jessica Darling. Yeah. Well, and Jessica Darling, uh, actually, now that you mention it, there was uh, a movie made that was not the thing. Uh, there was a Jessica Darling, I think it was called Jessica Darling's It List, right? And it was right. made uh, with some of the prequel books with Jessica in middle school, which I'm sure maybe were charming or maybe not, but they're utterly and completely not the point of yeah. the sloppy first series of five books. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder whether, whether anybody will make those books properly because uh, they are some of the books that, you know, just before the big juggernaut of, of YA hit, they are marketed even down to the candy colors on the books mm -hmm. differently than the prickly and nuanced characters within the books uh, deserve. So if you haven't read it, Megan McCafferty, Sloppy First is the first book. There are five of them, and the main character is Jessica Darling. And that wraps it up for our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Um, thank you so much for writing in. Uh, I'm pretty sure we're probably going to get it more mail than usual, um, given what we talked about on this episode. Um, and we always appreciate hearing from you. So subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave comments and reviews, and uh, we will be back soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.